If you look at the uh, the sermon title, I really couldn't figure out where to go with the title. Crystal was picking on me this morning. I even printed my notes with no title on it, and uh, she said, "Oh, that was a, that was a cop out." So she's trying to think of one, and and she quizzes Wilson on. I'm trying to make sure one that sounds good, and and we come up with deceptive advice, and he goes, "Man, that kind of flows off the tongue, good, but that kind of sounds bad because." Is there, is there any good advice? And, and I thought about it. I said, you know, in this story, there's a whole lot of advice. And all of it is good for somebody, and all of it is bad for somebody. So what you've got to really figure out when you're getting advice from friends or family or whoever, you've got to figure out who's it's good for and who's it's bad for. And then you've got to decide if you're going to choose to follow it. And if so, are you going to follow it to a team and you're going to change it up? So uh, that's where we're at. Deceptive advice. Last week we looked at David as he began his... Uh, Journey into the wilderness on the run from his own son. Um, you know, we, we got some lessons from that. And, and as we, we got into that, we, we now transition to the second part of chapter 16 and chapter 17 before we get into the battle of chapter 18. Uh, and we now get to look at Absalom and some of the advices that he's getting and, and some of the things that's going on as he gets back into Jerusalem and, and what his advisors are telling him to do, what he should do and what he shouldn't do. And I just think, you know, we've got a lot of people in our lives today that want to give us advice. Some good, some bad. All of it's good for somebody, all of it's bad for somebody. And you and I have to pray and have a spirit of discernment on what advice to take and what advice not to take. You know, we can argue all day long. Something as simple as these masks. You know, we can argue all day long about them. Do we? Do we like them? Do we, do we not like them? Are they really working? Are they not working? Here's what it boiled down to for me. And maybe this is a gut punch for you because it was a gut punch for me. I didn't like the mask. I didn't like the idea of the guy telling me I had to wear a mask. I, I didn't know if they really worked 100% to be all honest. But what it boiled down to was in Philippians, it tells me that I can love my brothers and sisters by taking away a little bit of their work. And if me just wearing a little mask that inconveniences me while I'm hot and sweaty at the shop, or, or when I get within six feet of some of you when I leave the stage you know, this morning, if that's all I got to do, to show somebody a little bit of love, I think I can handle that. I think I can take that, and I think I can deal, deal with that. You know, so, so just something simple. Maybe that's not it for you. Maybe it's something totally different. But I think sometimes we just need to open our eyes to what, what Scripture is really saying. Scripture gives words of wisdom when we consider our counselors. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is it there any understanding in them. Not only is there, is there no counsel going on, but there's no understanding of what they're being counseled to do. And sometimes I wonder if a lot of the stuff we're going to read back from the Old Testament and advice really applies and sounds very similar to what we deal with, with today. Look at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. The scripture tells us a lot about counselors, a lot about wisdom, and a lot about how to handle this stuff. So when we jump into the second part of chapter 16, we start right off the rip with, with some advice from advisors. So I want to jump into this thing. There's a lot to cover so we can get through both chapters and get into just some battle uh, next week in chapter 18. But look, it up, look back at verses 15 through 19 of chapter 16. Hushai uh, wanted to leave with David. His, his big plan back in chapter 15 uh, was he was going to leave with David. He was going to support David. He was going to be on David's side. David thought, you know what? If my son's got the best, wisest counselor that the nation has ever known, I'm going to need somebody in there to stir the pot a little bit. So what we get is, is another spy. Uh, you know, we've seen some spies throughout a lot of 2 Samuel and, and some of the motives that they have going on. And David says, you know what? I'm going to send you back to be with Absalom. I'm going to send you back to spy on them. 
I'm going to send you back because you're, you're my counselor. So therefore, they may also think that your counsel is, is something good that you can provide for them. And keep in mind this whole time, David has been praying for a way for God to confuse Absalom and, and his advising counsel. So, so this is all a giant setup. Him doing his part on what he can to, to get this going. So as he gets into this and, and he jumps in here, verse 19 says, you know, they ask him, what, what are you doing? Are you, are you really are you really with us? Why aren't you? You know, so they're a little, a little suspicious, you could say, and like any good spy, he lies. He says, I've served in your father's presence, now I'm going to serve in your presence. Or is he lying? He never said who he's going to serve. He just said, I'm going to serve in your presence. So in your presence, I'm going to continue to serve your father, maybe, is what he's aiming at or, or what he's saying at. But, but he says that. And then we get to 20 through 23. And here's the first time Absalom has to decide whose advice or what advice he's going to follow. And we get some crazy sounding advice for you and I today. So 20 through 23, verse 21, it says, That mean. Said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines. This is something that would be so offensive that it would eliminate all possibility of reconciliation with David. I mean, think about what he's actually telling him to do. Your father was fool enough, foolish enough to leave his concubines behind. People in the kingdom in the city, they know this. So you take him up to the very rooftop that your father committed sin against Bathsheba, and you sleep with him. And you let everybody know for sure exactly what you think. So he's doing two things here. One, he's trying to eliminate all possibility of reconciliation. And two, he's hoping that from this, this will give courage to Absalom's followers. You know, it's one thing when, you, when you're debating on who to follow and, and you see that guy kind of step up to the plate and do something bold and aggressive and it makes you want to maybe follow him just a little bit. So that's, so that's what he's aiming for. Now, here's the problem. Absalom is not forced to follow this advice. So I take no credit away from him when I, when I say that he's acting so immorally, and not even just the act of immorality, he's committing treason by what goes on in this time. And this is a way not only to replace David, but to also disclaim his father as king completely. This is something that would be done when, a, when another kingdom came in and took over a throne. And then you've got to ask, well, why is this advice coming from somebody who's supposed to be a godly advising person? And here's where stuff gets really bad. This guy is giving such radical advice because he's got self-interest involved in it. And when somebody's got self-interest involved in something, they slowly fade away from what is considered godly advice and get on some selfish advice. You say, well, what is the selfish advice? First and foremost, if, if, if David and Absalom are ever reconciled, he's going to be made out as a traitor. He's going to be the first guy that they will be revealed and rejected as a traitor. If, if this stuff is ever reconciled, he's done. His power, his authority, his position is finished. And the very fact of what he says in verse 22 when he says, so they pitched a tent for Absalom. So this guy's in charge of this. He's setting up. He's, he's setting the room. He's setting the room for what's going on. You know, so, so they did They did have this tent. People, people read this sometimes, and there's some stuff online that, like, so this is kind of like a, like a pornographic uh, scene that goes on. No, there's a tent up. There's, there's nothing. Uh, there's nerdiness about it, but it's not in the sense of everybody in the city is just watching this, this event. They just see the tent. They know what takes place. So don't, don't take it further than it needs to be. It's already a movie situation. So they pinched the tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went to his father's concubines. Here, here's what's going on. And here's what we really need to understand and dive back into maybe some of the history and check out why we know for sure this advice is selfish. 
Athenophil had a strange sense of satisfaction about David's woman being violated, and here's why I believe, and here's what Scripture points out through the past. Because it was his granddaughter Bathsheba that was violated on the same rooftop. So you go back, you know, and all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, and it tells us that Bathsheba's father was Ilium, who was one of David's mighty men, uh, who, who also had the grand, was also means that the grandfather uh, was this gentleman today that's given advice. So, so here's our very first major lesson we get, other than not following bad advice. When we're given advice, this shows the power of bitterness. Bitterness can make us do some evil, evil things. And it can allow us to give bad, bad advice. And where bitterness comes from most of the time is anger. So anger turns to bitterness. And, and let me tell you right now, as a believer, you cannot be whole if you are bitter. We talk about the wholeness of Christ, being, being one, being unified as a group, as a believer, as an individual. And you cannot be whole if you are bitter. And if you cannot be whole, the first thing you're tempted to do when bitterness and anger comes in is you then allow your pride to force you to fake it. And you put on your little spiritual mask and you pretend and stay in a position that you're in hoping that you can fake it without anybody ever figuring this out. Now I can't imagine how sad this is as a pinnacle is faking this whole thing because here, here's what he's really doing. He's willing to see these women get abused. He's willing to force and encourage Absalom to grievously sin. Now you think about your bitterness and what it does. It hurts people. It forces others to sin sometimes. And, and then the last thing he's doing, the kingdom of Israel is going to suffer greatly because of this. All to satisfy his bitter longing for revenge. Bitterness can make us some ugly, ugly people. And it can cause us to do some ugly, ugly things. Now, now we all know from, from chapter 12 that this incident is also showing God keeping his promise. Chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, it says, So I will take your wives before your eyes, and I'll give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it, for what you did secretly, I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. So God had said this way back when, and now we're seeing it played out exactly what he meant, exactly what's going on. And this verse even, even points out that this had been somebody who had been considered almost, almost considered an, an oracle of God, somebody who gave great spiritual advice. But in this case, he's giving foolish and destructive advice. And here's a lesson for us. It gets foolish and destructive when it's motivated out of bitterness. When you and I have a, have a bitter spirit about us, we give some foolish and destructive stuff. Bitterness has the power to turn our best qualities sour. It doesn't matter how good you used to be, how good you could be, a position that, that, that you could be in, or what you could be doing in that position. If you've got bitterness, anger, and rage, and maybe dab in with a little bit of pride that we're going to see in a minute, Going in with all this, it leads to destruction. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 13 says, Looking carefully, lest anyone falls short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. God's word clearly warns us against bitterness. This verse in, in, in Hebrews says, it speaks of the root of bitterness. Well, what do we know about roots? <laughs> roots grow under the ground. Roots grow in secret. Roots can't really be seen a lot of times. They're hidden. And the same thing, that what this is trying to warn us is sometimes bitterness goes unnoticed. And when we don't deal with it and we allow it to, to continue to grow under the ground unnoticed and hidden for a long period of time, much like maybe a, a cancerous tumor cell inside the body, if it's not surgically removed, it will begin to choke out and destroy the things that are around it. 
And that's exactly what Scripture's warning us against with the bitterness. If that root grows in the heart, it's going to choke us out emotionally. It's going to choke us out spiritually. It's going to choke out Christ. It's going to choke out the way to receive good advice versus bad advice. And as we jump back into this story and we check out what's going on, sure, it's foolish and destructive, but, but here's, here's what God's doing as he answers David's prayer. He's, he's allowing this guy to give this, this foolish counsel. And I believe this is going to be the reason why here in just a couple more verses in verse, chapter 17, that he's going to be willing to, to hear more advice. It's going to put a little bit of doubt into him because he knows for sure that all the people aren't immediately following him right after this. So, so here, here's where this goes. And maybe this is for us. Absalom thought he could establish his kingdom through immorality. He's clever. He's skilled as a politician. But he gets very ignorant in the ways of God. And it doesn't matter how skilled or how clever we think we are. When we're ignorant in the ways of God, destruction follows. So then we jump into chapter 17, still with this, this counsel and advice going on. In verse 1 it says, I will rise and pursue David. What, what, is, he, what is he revealing? He's revealing his motive again. Who's going to be the one to do the rising? Nobody can say his name. Crystal, go ahead and say it for us. With your mask off. <laughs> you know, he's going to be the one doing the rising. He's the one that's going to be the one to kill. As he says, I'm going to pursue just David. He's telling us flat out, I want to do it. And the only one I'm after is David. I'm not even after those that are following him. I'm not even after his mighty men. I am only after David. He says, I will strike the king. Now, I, I kind of thought that was funny because I'm like, well, hold on now. You're supposed to be saying that Absalom is king, but yet you're still calling David king at this moment. So maybe you could call it a slip of the tongue. Maybe you could say he really knows who the genuine, real king is. But in reality, he, here's the crazy part, because this verse says this. And the saying pleased Absalom and the elders of Israel. This plan is smart. You, pursue, you send one guy out to take care of one guy. There's not a big civil war. There's not a lot of things that are going to be destroyed. Not a lot of people that are going to be involved. I mean, this is a good Good plan in all honesty. It's got a bold and a high uh, chance of success rate on this. But you remember just, just previously he had given some advice that wasn't so great. That, that Absalom was foolish enough to follow. That, that didn't allow all the people to instantly just, just flock to him and agree with, with who he is as king. So now he's got this doubt, I think, in his mind. And he says, you know what? Let, let's, let's ask somebody else their advice before we fully develop this plan. So in 5 through 10... Chapter 17, Hushish disagrees with, with this advice. Absalom calls him and says, you know what, call, call him in and let's, let's check out what he's going through. And I think the minute that happens, God is working supernaturally through a prayer that was prayed back in chapter 15, where David prayed for there to be a way for the advice of a good advisor to be destroyed. And that's exactly what takes place. And here's what he says in verse 7. Hushish says, the advice that Athenial has given is not good at this time. It's not really good stuff. And I wonder what he's really thinking because you know it's good advice. Like you and I on the outside, we're thinking, man, that's actually, it's actually smart. You get somebody as soon as they get on the run, you know, before you get too many people involved and it's possible to, to get them before they cross over the Jordan and, and all this great stuff. And immediately this guy thinks, that, that's not good advice. Here, here's, what, here's what you need to remember. And, and, and Hushish, at least, is, is quick enough to remember David of the past and not David of the present. He goes, you need to remember, verse 8, know that your father and his men, that they are mighty men. Like, you remember how awesome of soldiers that these guys were. You remember all the things that, that they did. You vividly remember their past and the battles that they won. And in verse 8, he goes on and says, they're like a bear. 
robbed of her cubs in the field, hidden in some pit. You know, you don't mess with a mama bear, right? A mama bear is a mean, mean thing, especially when it comes down to her babies. So, so he, he's painting this real good picture, and he's saying, these men are dangerous right now. Like, you wouldn't normally think of them as dangerous, but, but if, if we're too quick to attack, there's going to be a problem. Verse 9 even says, and there'll be a slaughter among the people who follow you, Absalom. What he's saying is, this is too risky. And now, here, here's what I think is, is kind of humorous. And I, and I was sharing this with, with Crystal and them uh, this morning. A lot of the names we see in this section of 2 Samuel, they may mean one thing, but we see them being portrayed in the exact opposite. And I, and I think sometimes that's something God does in Scripture. So, you know, we, we looked at Absalom weeks ago. What, what does his name mean? You should just know the Shalom, if nothing else. Peace. Peace. Abba. So, so uh, a father, son that produces peace or peace of the father. You know, something that effect. Is he producing any peace in his daddy? No, he's really producing the exact opposite. So then we get to, to, to this guy, Hushes, and his, his name means fast. To act swiftly, to act quickly, to get it done. What, what is he doing, though? He's trying to slow the whole process down. He says, hold on, we need, to, we need to regroup. We need to think about this. So even though his name means fast, his name means swift, he's actually doing the exact opposite. Now, I don't know what the, the super spiritual lesson is other than when things aren't being done the way God wants them done, then, then names mean nothing uh, or intentions mean nothing. But, but I thought that was really neat that this guy's name would mean quick and he's the one that's trying to just slow this whole thing down. He gets to verses 11 through 13 and I think this whole thing's bathed in prayer. But 11 through 13, and he advises him, he goes, you need to raise up a huge army. Not only do you need to raise up this huge army, he advises that all of Israel be gathered, verse 11. But you need to be the one leading this thing in person against David Absalom. So, so look at what's taking place. You got, you got a couple things that appeal to us when we're receiving advice. Do we not always think that bigger seems to be better? That's the advice he's first giving. He goes, no, we need to raise up thousands of men. We need to get everybody involved in this thing. This needs to be a big, big production. Well, I got news for us. Sometimes bigger productions aren't exactly better productions. But it appeals to him. So he goes on and he hears this. And what's this really doing? You're thinking, well, hold on. If he's trying to get more men, isn't this bad for David? No, this is giving David time to regroup. This is giving David time to get away. It takes time to get this much men together to get a battle going. So, so he's, he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. He's, he's giving David time to get away and regroup. Verse 11, he says, and you, you, Absalom, you're the one that's going to lead this battle in person. This is going to give you the opportunity to prove that you're a mighty soldier like your dad, David. Now he's appealing to the man's ego. Think about the previous advice. Athenio's plan was that Athenio leads the battle. Hushes' plan is that Absalom leads to battle. So, so now, we've got, and now we've got another lesson that evil men are easily persuaded by their pride when they're tempted. When we have evil intentions on the inside, we have evil brewing inside of us, and somebody throws in our pride, it easily allows us to be tempted to make wrong decisions. And, and there's where he's at. If we would just get rid of our pride sometimes, I think we could get rid of a lot of problems. In this case, if Absalom wouldn't have had a, a pride issue, he probably wouldn't even have fell into this trap of, I mean, if you don't know, chapter 18, when he loses and, and, and gets taken out. So verse 14 Absalom, the elders, they favor Hushish's advice instead of Athenios. They say, you know, we're, we're going to go with, with this advice. 14, it says, the advice of Hushish the Archite is better than the advice of Athenio. This is the first time anybody's ever said this. Remember, remember, as soon as David found out that his man, his, his best advisor, 
was going over to Absalom, he, he was worried at the very beginning, way back in chapter 15, he goes, oh no. He's got, he's got good advisor on his side. He's got a wise man working for him. But quickly that fades when we appeal to somebody, or evil appeals to somebody's ego. Verse, verse 14 finished. And the Lord, now we get to find out the real answer. And the Lord proposed to defeat the good advice of this. Well, what's this section really teaching us? Is that no matter what it looks like, God is in control. No matter what it looks like, no matter what our situations look like, God is ultimately in control. Ultimately, the throne of Israel belongs to God. And he'll decide and he'll grant and he'll deny at his will who will and who won't be allowed to sit on that throne and have authority. So, so this is a great, great part of the story for us to remember back. Absalom had the smartest man of Israel on the side, but David's got the prayer on his side. We go back all the way to verses 15, or chapter 15 and chapter 16, and, and we see David praying. And we see that prayer now moves the hand of God in this. Folks, men cannot escape God. No matter how good things look, no matter how much authority they try to take and, and go, the Lord, it said the Lord proposed to defeat the good advice because David prayed. Prayer moved the hand of God. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 31. David prayed, O Lord, I pray I turn the counsel, you turn, sorry, you turn the counsel of Athenio into foolishness. David prayed before there was even a problem. Is that what you and I do? He's praying before there's a, he didn't wait. He's not, he's not waiting for a problem to come and then pray. He's praying in advance. And his prayer is, is very bluntly that the Lord will bring disaster on Absalom because of this. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 14 said the Lord will, might bring disaster on Absalom. There's a, there's a severe humbling of David during this time. And David has caused a lot of this. But one of the things we have to remember through all these chapters is that God's hand is not to destroy David, but to correct David. And maybe you and I have been in situations where we may think the hand of God is against us and we need to open our eyes and see God may not be trying to destroy you. He may be trying to correct you. So because of his love and grace to pull you back to him to openly understand things that he's trying to teach. David's warned of, of, of this plan in verses 15 through 16. And this is exactly what David had in plan when he sent his spy in. So everything's working to David's benefit now. Verse 16, the advice he gets, don't spend the night on the plains of wilderness. But speed, get across the river quick. Get, your, get, get you some room, get you some distance, get you some time to regroup, which is what we said back in those chapters that needed to be due. So he's warned. And, and, and I love the scene in chapter 17 through, or verses 17 through 22 that take place. David's warned how by, by this, this guy. And, and the whole nation has evidently not fallen into Absalom's plan because he's got good people set up around. Not only good people, but he's also got these spies that are willing to, to relay this advice from one area to the next. Kind of like a giant game of telephone. You know, they didn't have a cell phone or a text, so, so they've got these, these relays that they're sending, you know, people through. And these guys give this advice, and they have to hide in this well. And you picture this scene, and you have a lady who's so sold out to honesty, I think, that she doesn't even have to lie to cover up the truth. You know, they come in, they say, hold on, we're looking for these two spies. Where are they at? What does she say? They're right there by the water. Well, where were they at? Literally in the well. They're in the well. She took a piece of plywood or whatever she picked up from Lowe's and, and covered up the well, and, and that was it. You know, there, there's a story of a, of a lady during the Holocaust, and, and she sold out to just honesty. And she's, she's open with the Jewish family that is hiding with her, and, and she tells she goes, you know, I, I, I just believe I can't lie, whether it be for evil or for good. I just want to be open and, and upfront with you guys. And, and this father of the family, he decides, he says, you know what, this, this is who we need to stay with, somebody who's that committed. Now, you can imagine the fear when it comes down to 
know, God forbid Nazis or something coming into the house and asking a question. The woman openly tells you, you're willing, I'm willing to hide you, but I'm also not going to lie about it. So, so one, one day they finally do. The Nazis come knocking at the door. The family is hiding under the floor where the table is. And this lady's asked, do you, do you hide any Jews? And she says, oh, yes. And the Nazis said, well, good. Where are they at? They're right there under the table. Well, the Nazis look under the table and like, oh, she's trying to be funny and facetious with us. And they leave. But her honesty, they were under the table. They're just under the floor under the table. But her honesty still allowed everything. She's not in trouble. The Jews don't get caught. I mean, everything is just great in this thing. This is no different with this lady right here. She, she's open and she's on. Yeah, they're right there. They're right there by the water. I just saw them. So they walk over there by the well, and, and these guys are just hiding right there in the well. So, so sometimes if we would just be honest, God would take care of the results. You know, and we get to see that sometimes with some of these stories in Scripture. In verse 22, it says, So David and all the people that were with him arose, and they crossed the Jordan. And he, here's where I want us to stop for a minute and get some, get some real application. If bitterness and, and anger already and pride hadn't already, and your ego hadn't already you know, heightened your awareness of some things that might be going on in Scripture, Last week, we talked so much about the distortions that happen when we're in depression. And we pinpointed that, and the men had pinpointed it a couple weeks previous in the upper room to, to time in the wilderness. And sometimes time in the wilderness will, will get us into dark places. And when we get into our bouts of depression or anxiety or, or whatever it is, when we're in the wilderness, there's a lot of dangers all around us. So, so here's the advice that is given in verse 16 and then finally delivered in verse 21. Verse 16 to 21 kind of repeated together. It said, and send a message immediately and tell David, do not spend the night in the deserts. Cross over without fail, or the king and the people with him will be swallowed up. Here's a translation today for what this verse says. Stop spending so much time in the wilderness and get out of it quickly. When you and I spend too much time in the wilderness, we get ourselves in trouble. When we don't depart and get out of the desert quickly, when we don't take the warnings of, of depression, we will easily be destroyed. Now, now look at a desert. What is a desert? A desert is a place of isolation. Now, I don't know what your desert is. I don't know what your, your, your anxiety is. I don't know what yours is, but it's a place always of isolation. It's not like you've got a convenience store. You don't have an AC. You don't have a, you don't have a place of shade. There's no safe places in a desert. A place of isolation, a place completely away. You're at the mercy of the things around you. Most of the deaths that occur in the desert are because of the things around the heat or the animal or, or, or the lack of material that you need. So therefore, you need to get out quickly. And what God is saying is this. And, and people, man, but God said, be still and know that I'm God. Yeah. For a period of time, pause and understand that God is in control and then do something about it. Reflect and refocus and then do something. If you continue to sit there and repeat that same verse, you're taking one verse out of thousands of verses. Okay. So when we look at that verse of, of yeah, but God said, be, yes, be still for just a minute. Open his word. Read his word. See what it says about you. See what advice that, that God himself gives you. And we use the excuse sometimes, well, I don't have time to read the word. If you don't have time to read the word of God, you don't have time to be a real follower of Jesus. We can say it that way. Because when you do read the word of God, here's one that, that stood out. I wondered where to even go yesterday. And God just uses funny stuff, man. I've got this verse on a cup I happen to be drinking out of the same time I'm reading it. So I just, I just busted out laughing, you know, when this happens. But Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Flip that or, or it's on the screen. It says this. And we've used this before, but in a whole nother, 
a whole other illustration. So I hope this one may be a connect with us today for this part. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I think there's too many people sitting in churches that are staying in the desert. They're hanging out in the wilderness and they need to mount up like wings of eagles and get out of there. We learn a lot of our, of our lives by looking at eagles. You know, eagles are mentioned in the Bible 32 times. 32 references to eagles. Every single time, so all 32 of those, there's an instruction or an example for you and I that we can follow and relate to our lives. You know, God's big into using illustrations and, and, and visuals for us. So, so let's look at the eagle then. Some of you may remember some things we've looked at in the past about an eagle. We're going to look at a different part of the eagle today, but, but just in general. The eagle's like no other bird. It's royal, it's majestic, it's powerful. Science, scientists say that pound for pound, it is the strongest animal next to the ant. I know everybody, wait, but the ant. Yeah, the, the ant is so tiny. I mean, to be pound for pound strongest, you know, that's like to give Reese credit for being able to do more push-ups than I can do. You know, that, 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 that doesn't do a whole lot. You know, if I only weighed 20 pounds soaking wet, I could do more push-ups too. Uh, you know, so, so, so we've got this going. Pound for pound. So, so what does it actually weigh? An eagle can weigh anywhere from 20 to 35 pounds. But yet it can grab a 100-pound animal and tote it for over a mile in flight. Can you imagine? I mean, you think about this now. This is, a, this is a majestic animal. It will fly down with its talents, pick up something that weighs five times what it weighs, not only just pick it up, but then it'll fly a mile with it, just flapping those wings and soaring away. I mean, that, that's an amazing thing in itself to look at, right? So, so we go even further, and we look at how, how they're taught to, to soar when they're taught to fly. You know, they're not even taught to, to flap immediately. They're, they're taught to catch some of the wind and, and glide above the problem. You look even further, and maybe not so much for eagles that we have around here, which are a little bit different, but, but the general eagle, the original eagle that we all look at that's the size, always has a rock. And scientists say they can always know where the eagles are just by waiting on it to return to its rock every evening or the following evening. And, and as I read that, I'm like, man, how many Christians need to return Back to the rock. How many believers need to get back to understanding the power of the rock every day, more or less every other day, right? And then I think about how scripture references the rock sometime and how we get in trouble because we like Moses sometimes. You know, remember Moses was called to be a leader of his people and then the people he's leading out of slavery begin to have problems with him. And, and he gets to this part in the desert in the first part, we all know the first part. First part, he goes to God and he says, you know, your people are whining, God. And God says, yeah, go on over there and, and, and hit the rock and it'll produce some water and that'll keep them, keep them satisfied. Well, it isn't much longer and the people go to whining again and Moses goes back to God again. Moses and God had like this crazy relationship. It's almost like they were, if you could be, pick somebody to be God's best friend, it would almost be Moses. Because, you know, Moses like argues with God a little bit. And at the same time, like God, God respects him. And it's not like I could smite you right now, but I'm not going to, you, you know, so, so he's got this, this special, this special relationship going. I mean, he, he saved him at the very beginning, put him in the, in the water, you know, so it's just a big plan for Moses. But Moses goes back to God the second time and he goes, Hey God, your, your people, they're whining again. They're, they're doing that thing. So God says, okay, well, we'll do, we'll do this thing again, but we'll do it a little different. This time, instead of hitting the rock, I want you to speak to the rock. Now, here's what you really need to understand while we talk about the rock and the illustration and understanding exactly what's going on here. 
I believe the, the reason God gets so mad at Moses, because if you know the story, you know God gets real mad at Moses. So mad he's not even allowed into the promised land because he doesn't speak to the rock. He starts speaking to the people. And you and I sometimes, we'll start speaking to the people rather than speaking to the rock and we get distracted and that gets us in trouble. God told you to go speak to the rock this time and you're wondering, you know, and he gets mad and he hits the rock three times and, and you wonder, well, God, why did you finally get mad at Moses over this? And here's what we need to understand. And this is my belief and I believe it's accurate. The rock was supposed to be a representation of Christ. Christ was only going to be smited, hit one time. The second time it was to be spoken to. And when Moses messes up an illustration about what Christ was supposed to be in the New Testament, God said, you know, you can yell at me. You can talk bad about some of my people. But when you start dissing my son and the illustrations I've set up for him, well, that's when I draw the line. So the line gets drawn. And then as I think about this rock and the eagle returning to its rock, I wonder how often do people return to the rock and speak to the rock? Or how often is it people come to the rock and continue to talk to the people? And therein is what gets this, this eagle in a lot of trouble. Because what I told you I wanted to use was the second part of an eagle's life. When an eagle approaches 30 to 36 years old. So all you middle-aged people right now, you just got worried. Because this applies to you. We're going to stretch it and say that it could go up until 40s and 50s for some of the older middle-aged people in the room. It gets to a stage where it has the possibility to go into a moping period. Now, not all eagles go through this. But a great portion of them do in certain areas. Science don't know why. They can't, can't really understand it. But here's some lessons they're learning about. Now, when you talk about a moping lesson from an eagle and you and I being called to be eagles, listen to what the moping period does for an eagle. During this period, the eagle will go down to the earth into a valley. Specifically, we're going to use an illustration of one right there in Cherokee, North Carolina. So right, right there, about four hours from us, right? It goes down there and it just stays there. It stops flying. It stops soaring, and it just hangs out in this valley. And the longer it stays on the ground and refuses to fly or go back up to its perch in the rock, the more of its power it begins to lose. Hey, well, what kind of powers does it lose? Well, it loses the ability to breathe, for one, because calcium deposits begin to build up around the eagle's beak, where, where those breathing holes are, and it can't breathe as well. Because that area is made to have this high elevation to, to clean it out and have it. Its feet begin to swell so big that their, their, their talons begin to just bleed. Because an eagle's meant to fly, an eagle's not meant to walk. And as all this continues to go on, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, man, how many believers have gone down into a valley and forgot what they possessed in Christ and continue to lose power over themselves and over their life? How many people begin to cling to the things of this world and they get entangled with the things of this world and they totally forget about what God has called them to do and who God said they are versus who the world says they are. And I just wonder the whole time if that's why David gets this advice to get out of the desert as quickly as possible. David, you don't need another desert experience. Your wilderness this time is going to be somewhere different. And it's up to the eagle when he gets to this to decide if he's going to stay in the valley of depression and eventually die. Or if he's going to go back to the rock. Now I told you I wanted to use an illustration. So, so in Cherokee, North Carolina, uh, an Indian guide by the name of Tacoma has, has set up this reservation for these eagles. And, and in this, they, they've got this valley. They call it Eagle's Bluff. And they've noticed this team seems to be a valley where these eagles will come in during their moping period. So, so he's got this one study that's recorded, of course, online. 
you know, this, this bluff's a couple miles in diameter, so it's their wilderness. The rocky cliffs are all around it. They're surrounded. But when they get in this valley, they stay there. So, so two men are, are, are checking out these eagles, and they're doing this study, and, and they're walking around trying to record as much information as they can. So they pinpoint three eagles that are walking on the ground that are in Eagles Bluff, Cherokee, North Carolina. And they begin to record things about these eagles. Well, the first thing the guy notices, he even records it this way, he says, eagles normally look proud and strong. These eagles don't. They look weak. Their heads are hanging, they say, because of the calcium buildup for, for the breathing. Their eyes are not even like normal eagle eyes. They're, they're glossed over. They're crusty. They're beginning to close when normally an eagle's eyes would be wide open and ready to go. Their talons, they record, is where we got it from. Their talons are, are bloody from the swelling and the cracking caused by walking on the ground for so long. They're, they're small. Their bodies are beginning to deteriorate because they're not eating. Because here's what you need to understand about an eagle. An eagle will only eat meat. And it will only eat fresh meat. Not like the buzzard, who, who some people may uh, confuse them with sometimes when they see him flying. Oh, look, an eagle. No, it's a buzzard. They'll eat anything that's on the ground, rotten, polluted, or whatever else. Well, there in itself, we had to pause and write a little note, or I did at least, talking about how many believers that are supposed to be eagles or partaking of the world's pollution or that are eating rotting meat like buzzards instead of like eagles. But that was just for me. Maybe it wasn't for you. So, so then we go on and we record this, this next part about the eagle that I think relates to us real well. And it says this. Uh, let me get the eagle's eyes normally moist and alert. One guy records these eagles during this moping period are dry and they're crusty. Well, if your eagle, your eyes are dry and crusty, you're unfocused. If you're unfocused, you can't see the dangers coming around you. You don't even know you're in the valley of the shadow of death, maybe, right? More study goes in and they say this. The two men are doing this study and they ask to come with a, the Native American that is leading this expedition and is, is you know labeled this valley this thing and, and got this whole reserve going. He says, man, we noticed that there's eight, we've counted eight eagles that continue to fly above this region. Oh, the, the Indian gets very, or Native American, whatever. He, he gets excited when he says this, and he begins to explain what's going on. He goes, man, those eagles, those eight eagles that are all flying overhead, they were in this valley at one point. And the, the two scientists doing the study go, well, what are they doing now? And, and the, the, the Indian says, you just watch them. They're coming back as encouragement. In their talons, they fly down and they drop squirrels. They drop rabbits. They drop whatever they can grab so that the eagles on the ground now have a decision to make whether they will eat the fresh meat or not. And if the eagles on the ground will eat the fresh meat, they will get strong enough to then be able to regain their power and fly back out of the valley. But if they choose not to eat of the fresh meat, they will never get out of the valley. So I paused and I wrote, I'm so thankful that God has given men at Brookhaven Fellowship. I'm thinking of our upper room, but you ladies as well. Please don't feel like I'm kicking you out. But, but God has given Christians, grown Christians, tidbits of purpose and knowledge to share with baby Christians. We've got people who are advising people and helping people and trying to grow people on every level. Some of the conversations just this past Wednesday, conversations we had upstairs were, in my opinion, great just to see grown men sit around a table and talk about scripture and grow. To hear my wife sometimes on the phone and talk with one, I mean, there's just good stuff going on. You are the eight eagles that are flying above the valley of the shadow of death, dropping down fresh meat for little eaglets to decide if they're going to be able to eat it or not. And like those eagles, guys, we've got a choice. We can keep drying up. We can keep forgetting the power of Christ. 
We, we can keep forgetting the power of God's word. Or we can digest the meat. We can take God's word for what it says. We can mount up on wings like eagles and pursue the purposes of God that he has over us. It goes even deeper. This one scientist that's with the group, he notices that none of the eight eagles will ever land. They're just dropping things from way up in the air, and it's hitting. You know, so if it wasn't dead when he picked it up, it's dead by the time it lands, right? But, but he records this. And the Indian says, I don't, I don't know science, how much this got in it, but the Indian says this. He says, I don't think any of those eagles ever want to come back to the valley that they almost died in. And I read that and I'm like, man, how many believers need a warning to stay away from the places they've almost died in? How many believers need to open their eyes and see you can't go back there again? For 20 years, David was in the desert hiding in caves and who knows whatever else is going on. It made him stronger that time. But who's to say this time that God didn't know it was going to break him? And God said, you know what? This time, David, you need to get out of the wilderness fast and stay away from it. Maybe some of you right now are, are like these eagles are like David. And God saying, get out of the wilderness as fast as you can this time because you're not going to be able to recover. But yet, how many believers keep running back to the same sin over and over and over again? How many, how many of us keep going back to the same problem? We have? How many of us choose death rather than life? How many of us let the devil tempt us in our mind over and over again rather than opening the word of God and seeing what God's word says about it? Two of the eagles... In this specific study at this time, I'm sure there's been more since then, but two of them, two out of the five, were the only ones that ate the meat. These scientists kept going back, and, and this became their, their thing. They weren't going to interfere, but they wanted to see what was going to, to happen. These two eagles, they ate for a couple hours every day. A couple days later, they were able to fly out of the valley. One scientist followed them. The other scientist uh, stayed with the eagles that didn't, the three that didn't, and the remaining eagles they didn't eat, and they eventually died. They died because they weren't willing to eat the meat that was given to them. How many of us are dying in the wilderness because we're not willing to eat the meat that God's put right in front of us? He follows these other two eagles. I don't know how long. I didn't get to record any of the time this, this study goes on. But, but he said, however long later, these two eagles eventually returned to the valley and they joined the eagles that flew overhead to drop off meat for other eagles that got into a moping period in the valley to have the encouragement they needed to get out of the valley and go forth and chew on the word of God, the meat that would allow them to do. For us as Christians, guys, for us as Christians, we've got the ability to get stronger if we choose to answer and respond to God's word the right way, if we choose to get out fast. Not, not only was the advice given, understand this, and I don't know if the eagles were, were aware that death was right around the corner. Maybe that's some of the problem for believers. We don't understand that death is right around the corner. And it's our pride that keeps us from the Lord and our distance in the valley that keeps us in doom. Pride leads to destruction. That's what we say, right? Huh? Pride leads to, to, to the ending. Look at, look at the ending here. Not only do we get the advice, verse 22. It's one thing to get advice. It's another thing to follow. So David and all the people with him. They got up, they crossed the Jordan by daybreak, and there was no one who had not crossed the Jordan. I, I love this section, man, right now, because we've got estimated, I've estimated, I don't know about any smarter people than me, I've estimated there's close to 1,000 people with David right now. You've got his 600 mighty men, you've got his family, minus the concubines, 
And you've got, I'm assuming, the 600 mighty men's families as well. So, so anywhere from 1,000 to possibly 1,500, okay? Crossing this thing. And David makes sure, and that's an estimate. Don't, don't jot that down as like that's a recorded hidden verse somewhere, right? That's speculation. But David makes sure in verse 22 not only to adhere to the advice that he's given, but he makes sure to make sure every single person with him does so as well. Will you and I take the advice that God has given us and will we make sure that those under us are also following through on what God has told us to do so that when the enemy comes in verse 23, there's no one there for him to even fight, more or less destroy. And that's where we get. It gets so bad, verse 23, guys. You're talking about when you don't come out of the wilderness? We could do a whole study just on this. But it gets so bad in verse 23 that Athenio goes home and commits suicide. He's done. They don't take his advice, so maybe his, his feeling hurt, maybe pride led to his destruction. Maybe he was so worried about the outcome when, 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 when this thing does get going. Verse 24 through 26, I'm wrapping it up quick. 24 through 26, Absalom crosses the Jordan in pursuit of David. Now, now here's, here, here's kind of like, a, like a, a prelude for verse 18 or chapter 18 for next week, right? Absalom crossed over to Jordan. He and all the men of Israel with him. So Absalom is the head of Israel's army right now. That's good for his ego. But that's real bad on the battlefield, which we'll see. So that's kind of just a cliffhanger for you, right? Absalom, I wrote it down this way in my other notes. Absalom's vanity ensured his ruin. Comes up in chapter 18. Last part, though. 27 through 29, not even going to attempt to announce all those great names that my wife did an awesome job of reading. But here's what I want you to grab from them. All these names, each of these people in 27 through 29 where they're listed, they're nobodies. They're nobodies. But their names are recorded. They get special mention in Scripture, written down for the, for the life of, of God's Word because they helped David in a time of need. Because they were friends. That's it. That's all they were, were friends. We've got a phrase that we use sometimes, for uh, um, friends in need or friends indeed. You know, we get to see that really played out right here. Here's what's really going on. These helpers of David, they're not dramatic warriors. They're not any of the guys that are going to help David in, in the crisis like a, like a brave warrior would. They're sent by God to do nothing but comfort him. They're the, they're the eight eagles flying above the valley, dropping meat, and giving David the choice whether he's going to eat it or whether he's just going to sit there and let it go to rot further on. Guys, I don't, I don't know exactly what part of the day hits us. A lot of today is just the story. It's just getting, making sure that we're following verse by verse so that we're caught up for what's going to happen in later chapters. But there's some significant things that stand out about bitterness. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been bitter. Maybe you've been, been, been practicing and saving up for revenge. And maybe you just now realize this morning how useless that idea really is. How destructive that idea is. Maybe you're a prideful person. Maybe your pride has been forcing you to either not take advice or to take the wrong advice. And you need to open your heart and understand that, that you need to have a spirit of discernment about you so that your pride can be broken and not lead to your destruction. Maybe you're in the valley like the eagles, or maybe you've gotten out of the valley. Maybe you need to be chewing on meat. Maybe you need to be bringing somebody else meat. I think every single one of us in this room and online, at some point we connect with something even in a brief part of this story. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. God, I love the illustrations that you paint for us in your word. God, I love this, this section of this story, Lord God, that just highlights and sets up future, 
future events, Lord God, future lessons that your people need to learn from. And God, I pray this morning that that's what happens, God. God, you use this story, you use words, God, use, use situations in our life that have come about to open our eyes, Lord God, to see where we can stop destruction before it happens. God, where we can give good advice to those that need it. And God, if we're the ones receiving advice, help us to know, Lord God, what to receive and what not to. God, I pray as David prayed, Lord God, God, that you will send advisors into our life that are going to cause your thing to happen and not our thing. David wasn't just praying destruction for one person. He was praying for your plan to come to pass. And God, that's all we want to happen is that your plan come to pass. Lord, move in a special way amongst your people, God. God, send those that will drop meat to us so that, Lord God, we can chew on it for a few days and then fly out a few days later of the valley. And then, God, keep us Keep us weary, Lord God, knowing never to return to our areas of destruction. In your great name we pray. Amen.